everybody, welcome to episode 23 of Literary Disco, the Pulphead Edition. Today's episode in two parts. First, we will begin with another bookshelf roulette in which Todd, Julia, and I pick a book at random from our bookshelves, and then we will tackle Pulphead by John Jeremiah Sullivan, a book of essays that Julia brought to our attention. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> and someone on Goodreads or something say we should read it also? Yes, it was a double suggestion. It was Kismet, which means someone <laughs> suggested it to me, and I purchased it. And uh, the same weekend, someone suggested it, I think, on our Facebook. In addition to Kismet, I think our next <laughs> selection should be based also on a bad play. So um, <laughs> how about we have our next selection based on Fiddler on the Roof? Get the Jew uh, angle no. working. Our next selection, if you want to suggest a book to us, you're going to have to psychically connect with a bookseller in a bookstore while I happen to be there and have him suggest a book to me. <laughs> Our next book selection will come via the Ouija board. So, Okay, can I introduce you guys? Can oh, I yeah, you guys? sure, can I go this? ahead. I'm yeah. actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. <laughs> Joining me are essay and radio essayist. She's not an essay. Essayist well. and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hi. Uh, before we started recording, Todd... Uh, went on to Facebook. Is that where you ended up asking No, Twitter. People? Twitter. Oh, went on to Twitter and asked followers to give us a couple of numbers at random, which we took from who? Mary Becker. Thanks, Mary Becker. Mary Becker gave us three numbers, which were... 3, 6, and 33. And uh, using our very complicated algorithm... <laughs> <laughs> that led us all to a book on our bookshelf, which we will now discuss. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. All right, Julia. Um, well, I'm, the algorithm is the first number represents what corner of the bookshelf. I don't think anybody started. cares. Does anybody care? No, no one cares. Yes. There, there is yes. a system. There's a system that it's real. I might have fucked up. By the way, <laughs> I think Todd just picked up a book he wants to pick no, up. That's he just not looked true. at his shelf and was like, Me. That's not true. Okay, I haven't guys. looked at this book in years. Go ahead. Um, I picked a book that um, I have read, which is surprising since at least half the books in this department I have purchased with intention to read. But it's also a very popular book that I bet some of our listeners have read. I found the Steve Jobs biography. Oh. Uh-huh. Which I first came across last Christmas when um, it was given to my brother, and I promptly stole it. <laughs> and now two boys are searching for it in their jalopy. <laughs> the case <laughs> of the missing book. That's one of those books that I probably had interest in reading, but then everybody was carrying that book around for like, you know, there was that six-month period when, oh, right yeah. after he died, when the book came out, and like everybody was reading the Steve Jobs book, and you couldn't have a conversation. Like if you were having dinner or drinks with anybody without them being like, you know, that reminds me of the Steve Jobs biography. So I like never, I never wanted to read the book just because I got so sick of hearing about it, which is totally unfair. That's how I feel about the Bible, oddly enough. Two thousand years about the Bible. You know what Jesus <laughs> Everyone's said? Everyone's carrying oh. around and quoting it. I look, I get it. He comes back. Whatever. Yeah, really? <laughs> um, okay, well, if Steve Jobs resurrects himself while we're doing this episode, he's going to be mad that you made such light of this scenario. But he would enjoy being compared to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, th- that's funny that you say that, writer, because this must be a coastal thing. You know, like it's, it takes place so much more in your world than in yeah. my world because I feel like I could find no one to talk to about it. I could only wow. talk at 
to people about it. That's so funny. That's yeah, no, strange. I got so sick of hearing about this book. So I'm delighted that I picked it out because for my fiance, such a formal word, I still feel awkward mm. saying it, um, has <laughs> Greg, who I've mentioned many times in this podcast, has for years been telling me of the backstory of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak and Bill Gates and all their relationships. And um, and if you don't know, which apparently everyone does, um, they, <laughs> they all sort of rose at the same time as very young men and have like a, a schoolyard caddy history, basically. Um, so I had never demonstrated any interest in these topics. And then the second this book came out, I was, like, so into it. I watched the – there's a great Noah Wiley movie. That, that's, a, that's a series of words that have never been uttered before. Um, called The Pirates of Silicon Valley. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, it's actually a really, really interesting movie. And it's basically the book. Um, except the movie ends – it was made when – after Steve Jobs had gotten fired. So it was like – and the end to the story is that – he was an angry genius who everyone hates, and now he will probably die alone. And then, right, and Bill Gates, yeah, and the, 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 that movie was really about how Bill Gates yeah. succeeded and Jobs didn't, which because mm-hmm. it was before yeah. the iPod came yeah. out. Exactly. Right. So the book is is really great. I really recommend it. It's just it it's so personal. It reads as an almost like Shakespearean um, kind of story of this extremely terrible person um and the biographer had done other classic biographies right so he'd done, done ben franklin which who, i really who want wrote to read. it who's the author walter isaacson right right, right. um he wrote ben frank ben franklin and um oh einstein and kissinger okay so for a second i thought maybe it was mark twain I was like, uh, oh, no, no, no. no. I, know, I know about all the Mark Twain biography you. drama. There's, there's don't, drama. Uh, don't besmirch the twin biography legacy by questioning Julia's ability to know who's written every single word about Mark Twain. You know his uh, real name wasn't Mark Twain. That's a little, little what? tidbit. Are you that, serious? Yeah. Have to go back to work. Turns out his know. name was Danny. Danny Twain. Oh. Do you guys want to hear fun Mark Twain um, Always. He Please. had tons of different pen names. This this year, actually, last week was the 150th anniversary of the day that he first used the name Mark Twain. Uh-huh. Um, it was on the Super Bowl, so no one cared about this otherwise huge news. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> because goddamn Poe and his legacy had to fight it out on the same day. Ugh, Poe. Um, anyway... You guys all know that the Ravens are named yes. for Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, my wife learned that yeah. uh, the week of the Super Bowl and, and took a new and intense interest in the NFL that week. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, before his pen name was Mark Twain, uh, he was using Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass as a pen name. <laughs> oh, that's great! Oh my God, great? Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass has to come back. That's a great name. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. use that somewhere. Next, Ryder, next time someone recognizes you in public and asks for your autograph, sign it, yes. Thomas Jefferson oh Snodgrass. God, and be like, oh TJ gosh, Snodgrass? TJ yeah. Snodgrass. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to... That's great. I'll start doing blog entries as TJ Snodgrass somewhere. Oh, my gosh. T- yeah, TJ Snodgrass needs to make a comeback. He's like yeah. a young, you know, not quite sure of himself, Sam Clemens. I have to go back and look up what... TJ Snodgrass actually wrote. I think he mostly wrote angry letters to papers. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. That, but you know, that's that's what TJ would do. Fun. You know, that's what TJ's yeah, gonna TJ. do. So God, I mean, always with the anger. Always. Um, 
Are you guys, do you guys ever get sick of Edgar Allan Poe and popular culture? I really, like, because now there's this new show, The Following, which I haven't actually watched, and my friend Natalie Z is on, so I'm a big supporter. Go watch the show. Yay. <laughs> but, but, you're good. but, yeah, however, there's this whole Edgar Allan Poe, you know, backstory to it. And I just feel like whenever popular culture needs a literary reference, <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe is, like, the go-to guy, because he has this goth, like, hipster sensibility that fits you know the the twilight generation or something i don't know i'm just sick of hearing I, I about think red girl someone like poe po or you know characters like sherlock holmes obviously with yeah. um every iteration of sherlock holmes that comes along um i think it is a easy cultural touchstone for people to say oh i know about edgar Allan poe and really they've only read the raven or they you know they they know about the telltale heart or something like that they remember it from high school and so right, i think right. it's an easy place for people to go to to say oh this is going to be creepy because you remember being creepy when you were 14 exactly and i guess that's why it bothers me and it's it's probably unfair i mean why you know but i i i don't know i I, because poe was actually really good i mean Mm -hmm. when you read poe it's dense stuff it's not i guess like sherlock holmes i i i I, honestly i I haven't read a sherlock holmes book since i was a teenager or any of the original stories episode (laughs) ding 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 episode But I feel like Sherlock Holmes, I don't, I guess the reiterations don't really bother me because there, there's always a sense of humor or some, some kind of like over the top factor that feels built into the original. Like yeah. the idea of Sherlock Holmes was always kind of ridiculous. Like that a guy could be that many steps ahead of everybody always was kind of funny and tongue in cheek and, and, mm-hmm. and. I don't know. It, yes. it, it it doesn't bother me as much. Whereas Edgar Allan Poe, I'm like, well, actually, these were really good stories, and he was a really great writer. And for him to be keep being appropriated in this pop cultural way. Well, um, you know, I I agree. I both agree and disagree with you. I yeah. agree because I think that the difference between Sherlock Holmes and Edgar Allan Poe is that Edgar Allan Poe is a real person. Right. So it feels like he's been cartoonified in a way that doesn't match the work it's saying okay the person who wrote this must be like this like cool fun like dark spirit when he i mean i don't know a lot about him i have a biography of him that i haven't read but serious um, mental health issues yeah and drug drug addiction and died very young and all that stuff um the reason though that i disagree with you writers like i feel like there's room for that same reason to get to know the real poe and that people don't um I don't think he's overexposed as a person or as a historical figure. In fact, the Poe House in Baltimore is really struggling, and um, they've always had a hard time getting people in there because it's, yeah, it actually just closed down. Mm. Um, but the city, That's like, rebought yeah. it, and, well, it's in a bad neighborhood, quote-unquote. It's in Baltimore. So, so there Doesn't you go. McNulty clear that out? I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, I believe actually Omar said, if you're going to come at the Raven, best come correct. <laughs> okay, well, um, so that was our review of Steve Jobs by Walter <laughs> 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 Who's next? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm happy to go next. Um, so my book is the 1982 uh, Complete Handbook of Baseball. Oh no! <laughs> you fucks! Yeah, read open to a random page. Uh, I will open to a random page. Do you have a number oh. you'd like to select? Actually, how about a page number between one and uh, three hundred eighty-two? Page seventeen. <laughs> right. Page seventeen. 
Oh, page 17. Um, the case finally came to court years later, and in July 1980, a federal court ruling in Philadelphia cleared the way for, comp- for competition in baseball cards. So it's a page all about the, uh, and this was big in the 1980s, about the, um, the, the booming industry of the trading card business. So what, I don't understand. What is this book? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I presume they I probably still... I heard baseball still, in 1982 and my eyes just glazed they, over. I suspect they still put something like this out, but I was addicted to these books as a kid because as you guys know, I'm a big baseball fan because it's America's sport. Um, but it it went goes through and it, it talks about every team and it shows the statistics of all the players and gives that a little bio of each person. So for instance, Tom Pachorik, that's right, throws right. Put together his finest season in the majors last year. Then the, Ma- then the Mariners traded him to the White Sox when they refused to meet his contract demands. In 1981, Ryder, um, he played the outfield in first base. He hit 326 with 14 home runs and 66 RBIs. Um, but I, I love these books, as you might imagine. Did you really? You would sit around and oh, like absorb these books as, as, as you get. Maybe you guys can see it, but it is really dog-eared and well-read and, uh, you know, I've had this. I I have kept this book for uh, thirty-one years, so I clearly had some real love for it. But the interesting thing about it is, it looks like on the back page, and I should, I'll take a picture of this and I'll, I'll put it on our Facebook. Um, it looks like at some point I also uh, wrote a phone number down on it. Ooh, um, right. Three two three seven five five one. Oh, um, please call it. Please uh, call it. Should I call it right now? Yes. All right, hold on. Wait, what, does it have an area code? Uh, no, it's but 323 would be an extension in uh, the Palm Springs area where I live now. So I've had this book since 1982. I moved to the desert in 1985. I must have written it down. All right, hold on. Call ended. It didn't go through. Should I try texting it? <laughs> yeah, text and see if there's a response. <laughs> who's this? Are you, okay. This is Todd Goldberg. Are you into baseball? <laughs> no, do some, do some baseball related thing writer and I wouldn't know like I'm going to try calling one dot, more time dot, dot. hold on I am now calling the number for my home phone three two three seven five five do you have any thoughts on Mark McGuire here we go let's see not in service Aww. no longer in service oh my god well that was anticlimactic uh, also, <laughs> on on the back of my book, it looks like I did some math. Um, I have 151 minus 15. It also looks like I might have been eating some candy at some point while reading the book. Um, in relation to the amount of chocolate stains on the pages. All right, Ryder, what was your book? Uh, my book is... Um is a classic. Uh, it's Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio. That is a classic. I it's love great book. It is a book. great book, and I did not read this book until we were at Bennington together. Um, it's one of those classics that I had, had never picked up, but when we were at Bennington, I was trying to write short stories that were um, a group of short stories that were linked by location, because I was really into the idea of regionalism. And this is like the founding book of regionalism, Um Sherwood Anderson wrote it in, it says 1919 was when it was published, but I, I thought it was earlier than that. I think it actually takes place earlier than that. Yes. Uh, it takes place at the end of the uh, 19th century, or the turn of the 20th century. 
and it's about a fake town called Winesburg, and it's like this small town, um, and it's a series of short stories that are interconnected, so they all... They make some references to one another, but for the most part, they also function on their own. Uh, but they all take place in this this town of Winesburg, and it's just a, it's you know, it's one of those books that Hemingway was incredibly inspired by. Faulkner was incredibly inspired by. So many of our great novelists and and huge, more experimental modern writers look back on this book as the the book that kind of was a game changer before they started writing. And uh, I can't recommend it higher. Uh, there are people that hate this book. I feel like I've recommended it to somebody and they've said, like, that was the most boring book ever. Um, because it's not, it's definitely not an action-packed thriller. It's definitely not, <laughs> there's not no. a whole lot of plot. It's one of these books that, you know, it's, it's, it's about small lives and and small human moments. And a lot of times it's not super happy. Well, and it's, it's about, um, you know, famously it's about, looking at grotesques, you know, the, the people in the city who are, um, that you might otherwise ignore, but that's what the narrator is obsessed by is the grotesques of the city. Too, I think in my mind that and, um, Spoon River Anthology and Our Town have all merged into one turn of the century, small town. Yeah, definitely moment. Our Town. I've combined it a with A great town companion to, um, to Winsburg, Ohio now is, uh, the Donald Ray Pollock book, Knock em Stiff. It's sort of a modern retelling. Uh, well, not a modern retelling because it's completely different, but it, it hinges on the same sort of ideas. Hey, can can we go back briefly to my phone number issue? So while you were talking, Ryder, not that I wasn't paying attention, uh, I did a quick lookup of the phone mm-hmm. number using the old area code for the area and not the current area code. And the Internet has given me a um, an area in the city of Palm Springs where this phone number was used uh, when it was sold to 619. And I'm going to go out here on a limb um, and say it might have been my home phone number. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you have to write your own home phone number down there? You think you might have wait forgotten? A minute, um, wait a minute. I, I think you don't remember your phone number I, from when you were I growing do, up? But yeah, you would remember it if well, you saw I, it. Because I moved to Palm Springs. So I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking at this number and... It seems more and more familiar the more I look at it. Here's what I think. So where this uh, where this would have been in Palm Springs, we moved from one place to the next, and I remember getting my own phone line. And it's conceivable that my mother said, okay, here's your phone number now. And I was just like, oh, all right, I'll just write it on this book I'm reading. And uh, well, after I do some really complex math, <laughs> subtracting... Uh, 14 from 154. Uh, Hint, 140. (laughs) There's a chance, um, I think a really solid chance that that was my phone number. (laughs) All right, stick around for when we discuss Pulphead essays by John Jeremiah Sullivan. Oh my God, you're an idiot. Welcome back to Literary Disco. Um, this is Julia again here with Todd and Ryder. And we are here to discuss Pulphead, the essay collection by John Jeremiah Sullivan. Um, yay! yay. We, spoiler alert. <laughs> we all loved it. 
Um, From now on, you'll know ahead of time if we're going to like a book by whether or not Julia screams yay or nay. Um, it's going to be it's well, going to be a, a, a very short episode after that. <laughs> That's the whole podcast. Just Julia saying yay or nay. So um, this is a it's a great book of essays that was simultaneously recommended to us via a listener and also um, by our friend Megan Mayhew Bergman, who told me about it while I was in a bookstore and I promptly got to buy it right there on the spot. It was all very exciting. Um, and this writer, John Jeremiah Sullivan, um, he's written another book of nonfiction called Blood Horses, which is also excellent. Um, but these are all magazine pieces. Um, so it's an essay collection, but it's also a, a collection of some really excellent magazine writing that originally appeared in the Paris Review, GQ, and Harper's are the three sources for this. So they were all written separately um, with very specific objectives or assignments attached to them, and they come together as a kind of collection on current American culture and some of our anxieties and conflicts thereabouts. Let me ask you guys a question. Did you read this in order? Yeah. No. Interesting. I, (laughs) I also read it in order, Julia, and I found, I found the order kind of, um, I I thought the book got worse as it went along. I thought, I I thought uh, it's much more pop cultural up front. Like his first couple, couple essays are, he talks about going to a Christian rock uh, festival, like sort of the Coachella of Christian rock. He talks about Michael Jackson. He talks about Axl Rose. And then it becomes more obscure subjects as it goes along. And I found him much less interesting as he delved into uh, the more obscure subjects. I don't know. I I thought the opposite. If you were jumping around, it wouldn't have seemed like an arc. No, and I did it intentionally because um, I think with – because I knew it was journalism, uh, I thought, well, you know, let me me just sort of pick and choose in a random order. But – I found sort of the arcane things, like his his piece on the cave drawings, for instance, really right. compelling. Mm-hmm. And and the interesting thing is that I had read that piece after I had read uh, a piece in this collection that is actually fiction. And as I was reading mm-hmm. that essay about the cave drawings, I thought, oh, I wonder if this is going to turn out to be fiction. That this is not really true, but it's, it it is true. Um, and so, but you know, I, I like that sort of immersive journalism about arcane things. That's why I, I think I subscribe to the New Yorker so I can learn about, you know, someone who, yeah, you know, their job is to dive underwater and hold their breath for three minutes for a competition, something I never read about, but which is an article that has stayed with me for four years since I read it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I then found some of his pop culture stuff a little less interesting, but that might also be because I had read it earlier. So I had read the Michael Jackson piece earlier, and I had read the Axl Rose piece earlier. I was aware of those two. So, but I, I still found, I, I found the whole thing really engaging. The, the, the one piece, though, that really moved me, and we can, we can talk about it at some point, not right now, is the piece about him living with this aged Southern writer. I mean, that mm-hmm. was a really powerful piece. That, that piece won an award. It won... The 2011 National Magazine oh, Award. No wonder I thought it was so, good. Yeah. And it's called Mr. <laughs> Lytle, an essay. Is it li- it's amazing. Lytle or yeah. Little? I just assumed it was Little, but... I don't know. That's a good question. It's with a Y, so I thought it was Lytle. What do I know? Um, well, yeah, I think that there's kind of three legs that this book is standing on. One is music writing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of time devoted to music. Two is, like, pop 
culture, and he often takes a he takes a viewpoint that is kind of strange, or he immerses himself in points of view that he does not necessarily right. agree with. Um, so that is really smart, and there's a lot um, of that kind. And then there's some, I think, some amazing personal writing buried in here. My favorite one, I mean, Mr. Lytle is a personal essay, but my favorite of all the essays in this book is the shortest one um, about his brother. Oh, yes. Um, it's a great piece. Himself. Great piece. This is his brother electrocutes himself while uh, on stage, while playing a guitar, as I recall, right? Well, yeah, he puts his lips to the microphone. Yeah, and they are, it's so beautifully constructed. I just, I have to read this part because there's so much emotion embedded, like, in the middle of the sentences. It's just wonderful, wonderfully structured. So he's talking about, you know what he thinks about when he thinks about the electrocution. And in the middle of the paragraph, he says, I think of Liam, my brother's best friend and bandmate, who managed not to fall apart while he cradled Worth in his arms until help arrived, and who'd warned him when the band first started practicing to put on his Chuck Taylors, the rubber soles of which were the only thing that kept him from being zapped into a more permanent fate than the one he did Mm -hmm. endure. So there's, like, tiny moments like that about, you know, this kid who told his friend to put on his sneakers and it just like it touches on them and then it flies away and there's so much there's so much amazing beauty in those kind of details what what strikes me about that essay and then about the later essay actually about axel rose so he he goes basically in search of axel rose in, in one of the pieces but there's an interesting parallel between um the friend who basically saves uh his brother's life and then the friend of axel rose's who grew up with him who misses him terribly and, you know, asks uh, John Jeremiah Sullivan to put a note in the middle of the article for Axl Rose, and it's lines from one of Axl Rose's songs about forgiveness, basically. Um, And it's that strange um, relationship between young men, which isn't typically a very caring relationship, um, Mm -hmm. until you realize that, you know, even when you're a kid that you, you do conscientious things or that you have emotions that you hold on to for a very long time. And so it's an interesting parallel between these two people, um, you know, these, these two experiences related directly yeah. to rock music, basically, at, at least on a, a subtextual level. I thought that essay was so brilliant. And, and you know, I, I guess if you... Wait, which one? The, the Axl Rose, Rose one? one? A lot of them are brilliant. Like I said, I, I the first half of this book, I would say, in love with everything. Uh, the second half really fell apart for me. But I, that... That Axel Rose essay is to me is a great example of his strength because if you pitched me that article, if you told me you got to read this where this guy goes back to talk to Axel Rose. First of all, I don't I'm not a Guns N' Roses fan. I don't know anything about Axel Rose, so I wouldn't care that much about that. But then if you told me the structure, if you said and he is, you know, the guy who wrote the article is is from uh, the same sort of town and he not the same town, right? They're like from the same state or no, it's the some same connection. sort of it's the same sort of backwater area, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. nowhere, so he, basically. You know, They're both from com- nowhere. But he talks about his own childhood and his own friends growing up in relation to Axel Rose and Axel Rose's friends growing up. I would kind of feel like, well, that's a cheesy conceit or. Or that's an easy connection to make, or I don't. But you know what? He writes so well, and it's so nuanced, and he he doesn't make a real he doesn't make a sort of one to one argument. He never like has those those kinds of like. And mm-hmm. my childhood was just like Axl Rose's childhood, so I understand this. No, it's like a great work of fiction in some ways, you know, in that he lets it speak for itself. He lets the scenes that he piles up speak for themselves. The other one that I really love that no one's mentioned is the reality show. Essay. Oh, about I think that's the Miz. One of the greatest yeah. 
greatest essays yeah. on reality television I've ever mm-hmm. read. And again, it's a great concept. And you know, it's a if you pitch me this article, I'd be like, okay, maybe it'd be good. But the way he writes it, he he writes it in this dude speak. Uh, you yeah. know, where the, the prose itself starts to sound like a character from a reality show, the way like, hey, bro, just do shots, dude. And he starts addressing <laughs> you as the reader in this way, and he finds a way for the, the subject to bleed into the language. It's brilliant and so funny on, like, five different levels at once. And it reminded me of David Foster Wallace, too, in in his weaving of, of language and critical thought and pop culture, the way that he collapses all of those things into a seamless thread. It's really some of the best uh, nonfiction I've read in a long I time. I think also, like David Foster Wallace's nonfiction, he is clearly an intellectual, but he, both of them really use this essay mode to confessionally kind of connect with pop culture. I mean, yeah. there's so many times mm-hmm. where he says, I I loved uh, the real world, but he doesn't say I loved it. He just starts saying like, oh, well, when Tina did this mm-hmm. and when the Miz did this, and he kind of has no, he has no shame about being part of the whole culture. You know what I mean? He obviously loves Faulkner and he obviously loves the real world. And that's actually, I feel like pretty unusual to find, you know, people are, are constructing a persona that's either one or the other. Um, and it's, it was so reminiscent of some of David Foster Wallace's, you know, like cruise experiments. He opens a paragraph and here's a great point. That's exactly what you're talking about. I don't know how ready you are to admit your familiarity with the show and everything about it. <laughs> yes. He's talking about the real world. So let me go through the motions of pretending to explain how it operates. It's that tone, Amazing. right? It's perfect. It's like, he's like, look, I know you think you're smarter than the real world, but you're going to, so you're going to pretend you've never watched television, but here I'm going to, you know, pretend to explain it to you. But- and it's also, but it's also very inclusive yes. because then he actually does explain right. it. So we're all complicit very, in pop culture smart. is sort of the point, right? Like we we all think we're above it, but we're also you know complicit. My favorite line, actually, in that same essay, <laughs> it comes in in the middle of it, where he says, "I wish for your sakes that the Miz, Coral, and Melissa had turned out to be more fucked up as people." <laughs> Right. <laughs> and, and I think that yeah. goes exactly to what you're saying, um, Julia, about his ability to be both an outsider and an insider in this. Like when we I, I, I'll admit I haven't watched the real world in a long time, but there was a period of my life where I watched it a lot. Um, but that idea that we want them to be a bit more fucked up, I think, is really a compelling thing. We want to see these people sort of destroyed from this experience, but that they actually come off as fairly normal in this piece and aware of who they are, I think is um, sort of heartening, you know, that we're, we're, we want to like them because we like them on the TV show. Not that I actually know who the Miz is. I I think I vaguely know who Coral is. Um, I don't know who Melissa is, Um, but I, I found it still, you know, oh, you know, they turned out okay, even if they are drinking 95 shots a night. Um, yeah. You know, and I, Well, that's magical. I mean, I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> well, the, uh, the constitution just, of young men is an amazing thing. But he also, he nails down the particular celebrity of reality culture, you know, where it's, he talks about how reality shows, you know, originally started as this idea where you're filming people 
being themselves. And then that quickly turned into people that were acting like versions of themselves Mm -hmm. for the reality show. And now everybody's acting like they assume reality show stars are supposed to act. So it's like this third Mm -hmm. level of remove from reality that is it's creating its own reality. So now these reality stars are out in public after their show has ended acting like reality stars. It's such Mm -hmm. a, you know, and he's, I think he's spot on. He really nails it. Um, you know, he has this line, nobody's acting anymore. I mean, sure, they're acting, but it's not like they're ever not acting. And it's just so complicated, but I think he's right on. It's a very bizarre culture. Um, So to me, it's interesting you talk about the arrangement writer because these essays, some of them are very connected, but they're not grouped together, which is interesting. So Peyton's Place is the final essay. It's Mm -hmm. also pretty short, and it's about um, uh, when he, it's a personal essay about his wife and he renting out the basically the first floor of their house t- for One Tree Hill to shoot in, which they must have shot him for like five years. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and it really gets into the bleeding through, I mean, literally, of the show and their lives and this character who basically when they would leave and go live in a hotel, this character was having very dramatic experiences and how it tainted the house for them. Like she was raped in the house and so they didn't enjoy it. You know, the house started to get dark. But uh, there's this really funny paragraph where they're describing Peyton. She was complicated, deeper than the other teens on One Tree, which in teen show terms mean that she often wore flannel shirts. The other t- <laughs> the other relate. teens would come to her for advice. Yeah, she lived alone. Her biological parents were dead. Her adoptive parents missing or some combination. And it's just, it's a funny essay about, you know, this character inhabiting their lives and then when they eventually move the character is also forced to move it's this amazing ending uh the character is forced to move and the actress thanks them because the character gets to move on with her life so i i like that in conjunction with the reality show essay well i I think the the michael jackson essay is really an amazing piece of journalism because it's also not really journalism it's him reacting to Mm -hmm. other journalism which i think is something Mm -hmm. that he does particularly well where he examines something else, some other kind of research, and then has his own opinions on it. Yeah. And I think that's a difficult thing to do, essentially, as a writer. But to to try and draw empathy for Michael Jackson, I think, is a profoundly difficult thing to do, knowing what we think we know about Michael Jackson. And, of course, we never know as much about someone as we think we do, but particularly not someone who's been on trial as a child molester. But he really does an interesting job there humanizing someone who has existed almost as a space alien to us since he was a Mm -hmm. child. And I think that is a real deft skill as a writer, but it also shows, I think, a desire for John Jeremiah Sullivan to be empathetic to grotesques, which is something we talked about earlier when yeah. uh, in our in our roulette, and he of course has an essay in here called American Grotesque, as well. But you know, to try and look at all the different angles of Michael Jackson and come up with an idea, I have cast an idea of what Michael Jackson was, another idea of what Michael Jackson is, and then there's all these other biographies that talk about who he was, and you'll never know. And I I love that idea that he wants to believe the best of him in a way. And that's, that's a really compelling Mm -hmm. argument to make that you'll never know the truth. Enjoy the music. Try not to understand everything that you will never know about. And I, I was really struck by that. I found this essay 
deeply moving yeah. for the reasons that you're saying because he doesn't say basically he doesn't argue for his innocence right he says basically if there is a chance if there if you're in a room with two doors and one is that michael jackson was a frozen child innocent and look what we did to him i mean if that is even a chance like what does that say about him and what does that say about us as a culture and you know who was this person possibly if Mm -hmm. he didn't molest anyone i just it was so powerful and so lightly argued i mean it's not an argument it's just a what if this was true that it was it was really well done the problem with the majority of profiles that are done or well, every profile that's done in America, even in really good uh, magazines, a lot of, it's it, it falls into they fall into one of two categories. It's either the Us Weekly stars; they're just like us kind of mode, right? Where it's like, look, yeah, it's yeah, a real yeah. human mm-hmm. being, or it's uh, this person is so incredibly talented and lives this fantastical life that you'll never have access to. And what I love about the Michael Jackson profile is it doesn't deny either one of those. It kind of tells both of them at the same time mm-hmm. and interweaves them and makes it a really, you know, because the truth is celebrity and fame and being a musician of that caliber is way more complicated than just being a normal human being like everybody else or being this crazy superstar where you live this, you know, fantastic life. It's somewhere in between. It's somehow more complicated than that. And just the attempt to try and write a profile from the outside that goes beyond either one of those two modes is always mm-hmm. awesome. And, and he, he, he pulls it off really well. I, I, I like Julia, I was really mm-hmm. emotionally invested in that essay on a surprising level. Mm-hmm. So the essay that really bothered me, um, like I said, as the book got later on, as, as his subjects became things that mm-hmm. uh, were actually more interesting to me, in other mm-hmm. words, not pop culture subjects, but like the caves, basically people that are robbing Native American artifacts from caves that they're finding in Kentucky, uh, or he tells the, the story of this naturalist from the 19th century that's sort of been forgotten, things that I would probably find more interesting, I thought they were less nuanced and... Uh, he didn't put himself in them as much, and the essays fell more flat to me. Uh, but the one that really bothered me was he has this essay about animals attacking humans. <laughs> I knew this was going to be the one. And it turns out to be complete bullshit. Uh, spoiler. At the end of the essay is him saying, I made all this up. Uh, the facts that I'm pointing to, i.e. animals killing people are not made up, you can Google them, but he makes up all these uh, experts and paranoid people that are taking him around, telling him facts about uh, animals gathering, uh, animals getting smarter and more animals attacking humans than ever before. And he's trying to build this argument for this as an actual phenomenon that's really happening. Then the fact that he made all this up made up all these people to point to these facts completely undermines the argument. What, what did you guys think? I, I found that a pointless essay. And the, the, the piece is called Violence of the Lambs, incidentally. Um, 
you know what? As I was reading it, I was like, holy fuck, why don't I know about exactly. these dolphins turning yeah, against yeah. me? Me too. Um, <laughs> I, was, I, I couldn't wait to share this essay with people until I found out it was crap. Because, like, my brother's obsessed with animals attacking people. Like, you know, he's just one of the... I mean, we all are at some <laughs> level, but Shiloh loves, like, yeah, shark yeah. attacks and, like, that kind of thing. So I couldn't isn't wait that, to... Isn't this the most human thing? Right. So I yes. couldn't wait to share yeah. this essay with my brother. I was like, Shiloh, you gotta... But then when I got to the end, I was like, oh, this is all crap, and you're creating something that's... You're making connections that aren't really there and I don't know. I, I, really I should note down. to the I should note to the listeners of Literary Disco that one time we were at dinner, Ryder and Shiloh and I, and there was a live lobster brought out, and Shiloh nearly ran for the hills. Yeah. Shiloh's not a big fan of the shellfish. If there's a if there's a shrimp on the table, Shiloh might vomit. So a giant lobster but, being brought to the table on the cart is too much for him. Well, you know I. Um, I, I, there's that when we've had this discussion a lot on this show over the course of the last ten years we've been doing it um, about <laughs> reality in nonfiction yeah. and about you know w- where to go with it. Um, but the more you read it, the more absurd it becomes, and you have to start questioning: Is there is this true? And he tells you it's not true. It's not like at the at the end you don't know it's not true, um, but it's because it's in a book of nonfiction. If this were in a book of fiction, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't otherwise care. Um, and so I think it's, it's the framing of it. Yes, but I don't mind fictionalizing moments within an essay or having a self-conscious fictional moment. But if, if the point of this essay is to genuinely draw attention to something that he thinks is really happening, if he really believes that animals are getting smarter and it's this evolutionary moment in history where animals are starting to kill humans more, that's a crazy argument. Like that's a, that's mm-hmm. actually a mm-hmm. very big, broad theory to throw out into the world. And why doesn't he just write about that theory? Why doesn't he collect the facts yeah. and make that argument? He knows that that's a ridiculous, crazy theory, so he couches it by he, he or he hides behind a fictional. A mad scientist that he creates who is proposing that theory and that's bullshit to me because then it actually undermines what you the facts that you're gathering if you're actually gathering these facts just gather the facts make that argument but instead because he you know creates this paranoid delusional scientist and uses that as a straw man it's a weird way to structure it because I that's a straw man for his argument which I don't know if I... I totally agree. It's because at once it's the most scientific and unscientific essay. Mm -hmm. Of all the essays to mess around with, why would you choose the one about science? Let me me ask you a a devil's advocate sort of question. How how different is it than the scientist interpreting the cave drawings, you know, in, in his in his piece about the caves in the South? Completely different. You know, because that's a real scientist that he's quoting, right? Who, but that's an expert in a field who's saying, I'm an expert in a field and I'm offering up my opinion of these paintings, take it or leave it. And, and But an mm-hmm. opi- what's an opinion but just an educated or, or uneducated in some cases guess? You know, they are they're attaching narrative to a drawing. Right. But here's the thing. And he's attaching narrative to a an, an actual incident. Right. And if John Jeremiah Sullivan wrote that essay and, and attached to animal attacks this theory about evolution 
that would be one type of essay, and I would be like, great, stand up for what you actually believe in. But instead, he hides behind a fictional character, a fictional scientist, because he knows that it's a really, really crazy, bad scientific argument he's trying to make. <laughs> and to me, it's 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 a it's an admission of of. Uh, stupid intellectual leaps that he's making that aren't really backed up by anything so he has to create fake experts in order to back that up and then admit that he created the fake experts so he can sort of you know be it's it's a really easy way to like th propose this crazy argument and then be able to say ha I just made it all up except for the important parts look it up it's like, wait a minute, no. It, it's yeah. like, if it was really that important, make that argument. But he knows that nobody would publish his essay, and nobody would... It's like he's afraid of being judged for his belief about animals attacking humans. And it's like, it, to me, it's a weakness. It's an intellectually weak structure. And it makes me judge John Jeremiah Sullivan as a, as a, as a thinker. And, you know, there are a couple moments, even in the early essays, he does these stupid spiritual things that really bug the crap out of me. Because it's like he's this really nuanced, smart guy, but then, like, this great essay, emotional essay, which I agree is one of my favorites about his brother getting electrocuted, he ends with this brother's vision that his brother had, and it's fine, like, make the, explain the vision that your brother had when he thought he was dying, and his brother had this vision of, um, you know, uh, Mark Twain's uh, Huckleberry Finn, and, and it, it, but then he interprets it, but he interprets it spiritually, like, as if his brother was somehow psychically connected to Mark Twain's birthday, or and it's like, wait a minute, you're a smart guy, like, don't go off into, like, Never Never Land bullshit, and he does the same thing in the first essay, too, um, what is he saying? Is the Christian rock? Yeah, there's some... There, uh, he had this moment... He has a couple of lines that I go, wait a minute, you're, 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 not, you're no longer in the realm of logical, like, reality-based thinking. You're making leaps that are entirely faith-based. And the irony behind that is that he has this great discussion of faith as a door of logic that he locks behind itself which mm -hmm. I loved. Mm -hmm. Like, he describes the Christian faith in the first essay, and he talks about how when you have faith in something, it's essentially, um, you know, it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, you have to go beyond intellectual thought and accept that there's a God or whatever. And, and he describes that those leaps are a door that lock behind you. He just has this great description of it. But then he has these moments in his essays where he does the same thing himself. And I'm kind of... But I think I, I, I think this is intentional because the entire book is about the mythology of gods and men. You know, Axl Rose, Michael Jackson, actual god, um, the Christian mm -hmm. rock stars, and then this idea that the animal kingdom is rising against us based on, you know, and it's it's a fictional tale, but how much more fictional is it than maybe the Bible is, you know? So I, I think this is the argument that he makes throughout the book, which is that you have you're constantly making leaps of faith based on things that you don't know completely that are your gods and your humans you know th these these simple constructs that we as people put our belief in you know people believe in axel rose like he's a god they believe in michael jackson like he's a god they believe in they believe in the Miz like they he's believe a god. in the Miz like he's the god or they're going to believe uh, scientific data if it says dolphins are eating people oh my god or the, there's a great essay about the tea party in here where he goes to um a tea party rally and you know this is it, it's a similar thing and it's it's about the fervency of belief when those beliefs are more about emotion than they are about things that are tangible, things that actually matter. And I think that's what he's doing 
to an extreme degree in violence of the lambs. I think that, yeah, I agree with you, Ryder. Like, I thought it was really weird, that part at the end. But I also feel that he's too smart of a writer. And his editors, I mean, that's an unfinished piece if you read it at face value. And I, I agree with Todd that I think that it must be intentional. But I don't think the point is as well made as he wanted it to be. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess, I mean, I'm kind of, I think if I'm taking what Todd's saying correctly, you're, you're saying that, that, that people propose things that are kind of out there all the time. Right. And and that he's, as a writer, just kind of covering these out there ideas. But, or, or, or sometimes, these these leaps of faith that people make, these intellectual and, leaps and that And also because make. he he was a person of faith. He was brought up yes. as a person of faith, and then it changed. Right. So I think that's that's I think that's understanding that he had a mythology that he believed in, and then he's then gone in search of these things, these truths, for the rest of his life. Right. But 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 you you whether those truths work or not is still based in reason and logic and evidence. And I mean, to me, the like the 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 essay. The, the essay that's about the naturalist from the 19th century, I'm forgetting mm-hmm. the naturalist's name, but he's mm-hmm. kind of this crazy, kooky figure who uh, pre- preceded Darwin in some ways mm-hmm. and had some some great passages and great thought, but then also did all this crazy stuff. And to me, John Jeremiah Sullivan as a writer does a great job in that essay of um, balancing like the crazy and the visionary. You know, mm-hmm. and and yeah. and to me, like what you're saying, Todd, is that he's always playing with the the notion of a visionary versus crazy, and right. which one, you know, and and how people can sort of move in and out of each, which I love. I love that idea. But in order for that idea to work, I need to trust the writer to not get lost on one side of that equation or the other himself. <laughs> and mm-hmm. what that mm-hmm. the the S- violence of the lambs got lost for me. Like I, he lost his authority. By sell, you know, by by selling out his own authority in within the essay and saying, "Haha, I'm lying to you. I made all this up, just because I wanted to propose this crazy idea that animals are eating people. It's actually happening. I think. Look it up. It really is. I'm not misquoting fact. Well, then you you're a kook yourself. Like you know, either stand up for something or not. I think that what is great about these essays is that he, but also what's causing you frustration, writer is that he doesn't seem like a person who is done thinking or has concluded anything about his life or himself or pop culture. So he's really in a messy zone Mm -hmm. here that's both personal and analytical. So I I appreciate these essays more as personal essays than as... Than as magazine writing, actually. Like, I'm, I don't know how I would feel about some of them if I read them in a periodical. Um, well, just to end on a good note, because we didn't really talk about it um, much, so why don't we end by talking about oh, Mr. Lytle? It's, a, it's, Mr. A, it's a great piece. So, um, John Jeremiah Sullivan, while he's in college, actually, <laughs> but not really enrolled, he moves into the house of this esteemed Southern writer, Mr. Lytle, basically as a caretaker, and it you know, he's one of a series of young men who have lived in this man's house. He moves in uh, to this home of this esteemed Southern writer and Andrew Lytle, the esteemed Southern writer Andrew Lytle, as as basically an apprentice, and then he becomes his caretaker, and then it becomes something much more. Um, he's a very old man. He's in his 90s when John Jeremiah Sullivan moves in with him, and it's a very fraught relationship because it, 
one point, um, and this is, you know, you'll read this in the book, Andrew Lytle crawls into, or he crawls into bed with Andrew Lytle to keep him warm one night in a very odd scene, and John Jeremiah Sullivan wakes up to have Andrew Lytle nibbling on his ear and cupping his balls, as happens. Um, and it's, it's a awesome? sad and awful story, but it's also a story about, or an essay clearly about a man, John Jeremiah Sullivan, who cared deeply for Andrew Lytle and uh -huh. understood that what was happening to him was not, um, you know, was, was a condition of his, of his dementia. Um, but it, well, but it also is a great portrait of an aging artist, mm -hmm. an aging intellectual, of a generation that, you know, he, the Southern, those like great Southern writers. And it's such an interesting portrait. I mean, I just love, I love stories about mentor figures, you know, about like young writers yeah. teaming up or young artists teaming up with an older artist. To fight crime. As they do. <laughs> <This board. laughs> uh, but I just, I thought that, I thought that this was a really great examination yeah. of, of that relationship because it's so complicated and messy in this case, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because the guy is gay or at least bisexual, uh, the older guy, and the young student is a John Jeremiah Sullivan is not really enrolled in the school and isn't really doing the work, and they're arguing and debating and and drinking together. It just was a cool scene. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, I don't know. It made it made me want to like find old writers that are probably still around right now and like go live with them for a couple of weeks. I'm gonna and, like, I'm gonna go ahead and say that's a bad idea. Yeah, but don't you feel like it, it? To me, it was an essay about how much we can learn from the mm -hmm. artists that preceded us and how often we take that for granted, especially when we're young college students. We just, we blow old people off, especially old writers. Like, oh, they haven't won an award for so long, you know, mm -hmm. a while. I'm going to read the other 20-something-year-olds who are writing novels. And it's like, no, we should be hanging out with, like, you know, the 85-year-olds and, like, picking their brands because they probably have crazy-ass stories. And, like, we have this idea that... <laughs> we have this idea that culture... Uh, keeps growing and getting better and and especially as artists we keep wanting to reinvent the wheel and to me this essay was a great example of how progressive you know people were 40 mm -hmm. years ago and here is this guy who like when he when it gets to the question of sexuality he's like oh yeah you know and and John Jeremiah Sullivan has to face the fact that like oh all these old tough guy southern writers were actually probably fucking each other. Like, that's crazy. And, like, he, you know, he tries to describe the nature of what that was like, and, like, we just assume that, you know, we live in this world that's just getting more and more progressive, but, of course, artists mm -hmm. were artists back in the 40s and 50s, Well, I, I think the, the thing also is it's about sort of great expectations, both his great expectations yeah. and what Lytle's great expectations were many years ago and where what he became. Um, and I think all great artists at some point, unless you are the canon, unless you're Shakespeare or Faulkner or something, you become a footnote in the history of whatever you're doing. Um, as you were just saying, Ryder, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're replaced by the 20-year-old. But it's also a haunting kind of love story. And it ends with a haunting, but we won't, I won't ruin that. Um, but it, it's also a haunting for, I think, Sullivan about, you know, where he was then and what he wanted about his life um, and how he ended up where he did. And would Lytle, would Lytle um, like what he's doing now, basically? Which, you know, I have an old mentor, um, and I still hear him in my head. I, I worked with a guy named Tom Filer when I was just starting out, who, God, he brutalized me, not in the way that Lytle does in the bed scene. Um, but, you know, he toughened me up so much because I wanted to show him I wasn't a bad writer because I felt like everything I did, he hated. Um, and but he was a, a disappointed writer too. He had failed, 
Um, he had been he had a bad review in the New York Times mm-hmm. and it ruined his career basically. Um, not mm-hmm. not really. It ruined his career in his mind, which I think is the worst thing. Um, the key. But yeah. you know I. I I love that piece because it is also so emotionally truthful to, to go out there and say that this weird thing happened to you also is a hard thing to do, you know, particularly when all the other pieces are mm-hmm. about weird things happening to other people. This is one of my favorite um, passages because he's, he's talking about living with this professor. I found him exotic. It may be accurate to say that I found him beautiful. The manner in which I related to him was essentially anthropological. Taking offense, for instance, to his more or less daily outbursts of racism, (laughs) chauvinism, anti-Semitism, class snobbery, or what I can only describe as medieval nostalgia, seemed as absurd as debating these things with the caveman. Shut up and ask him what the cave art means. Right. I love that. Like, because it's true, you know, you don't have to think that everyone's a great person to learn Mm -hmm. something from them. Um, Mm -hmm. um, It's a great little passage. Well, thank you, Megan Mayhew Bergman, for telling us to read this, and whoever the mystery reader was online. I, I, I think it's, I think it really is yeah. a book that's best read in pieces, um, personally. Yeah, I think you're right because when I read it straight through, I was severely disappointed. <laughs> so jump around, uh, jump as House of Pain once said, jump around. Jump up, jump up, and get. That's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss our first poetry editions. We'll discuss the collections Smith Blue by Camille Dungy and When My Brother Was an Aztec by Natalie Diaz. Thanks for listening. So, so crazy.